Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Martine Sims. She's included in Speech Acts, a six-artist exhibition at the Institute of Contemporary Art in Philadelphia. The show examines experimental black poetry and how language has shaped black American experiences. It was curated by Meg Only and will be on view through December 23rd. The museum's website includes lots of supplementary material, including a reading group syllabus, a gallery guide, an exhibition poster, installation views, and more. We'll have a link to it on manpodcast.com. There's also a published catalog. Sims is an artist and the founder of Dominica Publishing, a press dedicated to exploring blackness in contemporary art and culture. Her work most often uses video, installation, and performance to investigate representations of blackness, especially in popular culture. She's been featured in solo shows at the Museum of Modern Art in New York, White Flag Projects in St. Louis, the Camden Arts Center, and the Institute of Contemporary Art in London, in Miami's Locust Projects, and more. On the second segment, we'll revisit my 2013 conversation with Petra Galoy Hertz, who had just published a monograph of Hassel Smith's work. You may recall that last week I spoke with Crocker Art Museum curator Scott Shields about Hassel Smith's influence on Richard Diebenkorn. New York's Washburn Gallery will open an exhibition of Smith's work from 1959 to 1962 on November 2nd. But first, Martine Sims, after the break. New York City's East Village was a hotbed of creativity in the 70s and 80s, and looking back, the film, fashion, music, art, and performance is still as fresh and exciting today as it was then. The seminal group Club 57, where curators and artists like Keith Haring and Ann Magnuson thrived, was the epitome of fearless and independent programming. Find out more at the Museum of Modern Art in Manhattan, where the exhibition Club 57 Film, Performance, and Art in the East Village, 1978-1983, to opens on Tuesday, that's October 31st. Visit MoMA.org and plan your visit today. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents The Glamour and Romance of Oscar de la Renta, an exhibition celebrating the illustrious life and career of the renowned fashion designer. Nearly 70 ensembles sourced from de la Renta's corporate and personal archives, the archives of French label Pierre Balmain, private lenders, and the collection of the Museum of Fine Arts Houston are featured. On view through January 28th. Visit mfah.org slash de la renta for more. Experience the high life of 18th century Europe through the eyes of its greatest lover, Giacomo Casanova. Luxury, adventure, intrigue, and seduction. With more than 200 works including paintings, sculpture, and decorative arts in a major exhibition bringing his sensational world to life. Casanova, The Seduction of Europe, through December 31st at the Kimball Art Museum. Plan your visit at kimballart.org. And we're back. Martine Sims, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thanks for having me. Your work engages various pop cultures, so not just TV or film, but also what, you know, kind of digital pop culture, the way the way the internet has merged into into pop culture. And you play with pop culture by, by, by sampling it or compiling it, and of course often by, by building upon things you pull from, from pop culture. What is the power of pop culture that you want to engage with or access? What, what is its core power? I think for many Americans, it's sort of the site of discourse within our society. And 
it's a place where you can clearly see like what is valued or what values are sort of being promoted. And I think it also gives a sort of common language. I have observed and participated in many conversations about like television shows or movies or or memes, honestly, <laughs> things like that. And so I feel like there's already this language that people are sharing. And in some ways, I find it to be opposite of like a kind of regional language. Like if you think of slang or dances or things like that, uh, that used to be much more regional before they would spread out. Now there's this sort of lingua franca that starts online, and that's something I'm interested in, as well as the way that film and television and sort of time-based media can operate as a kind of cultural memory. So we can see how different values change throughout time. And that's another thing I'm sort of fascinated about is like, for example, a piece that I did as part of this poetry project in Miami, as part of the Oh Miami Festival, I was sort of looking at this album from Sam Cooke, which had been recorded in 1965 at a club was so a sort of during segregation called the Harlem Square Club, but it wasn't released until the 80s. And I was sort of interested in what happened in those in between years that something could be totally shelved and unacceptable and then be released and sort of critically acclaimed. So I feel like it provides a kind of benchmark with which to think through history and economies and social structures. One of the the benchmarks that you've spoken about before in terms of your own, I don't know, probably your own life more than your own practice was the MTV show, The Real World, which you watched in art school. And I guess just as you were leaving art school and you've talked before about watching it all the time and taking life lessons from it, even two questions. Why did you like that show? And did it point you to places that you still use in your work? Well, I started watching The Real World at a very young age. I had to have been like, I don't know, maybe six or something like that. <laughs> I remember the earlier like season L.A. Seattle is my favorite season of all time. But it was a show <laughs> that I was very engaged with. And I think it was, I thought that that's what like adulthood was like. And I remember distinctly when I realized I was older than people in the real world and I realized how young they were when they're on the show. But, you know, as like a kid and sort of preteen, I was like, oh, this is what it's like to be a grown up. You just drink tons of alcohol and argue all the time. But I was really interested in as I when I was in college. I, well, when I transferred to the Art Institute, I just made this decision that that's what all my work would be about. <laughs> so every project for every class had some relationship to the real world. So like was, my thesis project was sort of this, like basically I took a clip in which two of the characters from the characters, people from the first season are arguing Kevin and Becky and he calls her racist. And they're sort of talking about there's an election and they're sort of talking about their perspectives, her from a sort of white feminist position, him from this sort of militant black male position. And both of them are, are kind of describing how they align and don't align with those identities that have been put on them. And, and it kind of spills over, but I was interested in the sort of failure of this. So I just kept recording it between two tape decks. 
So it becomes sort of an abstracted image and the sound gets changed as well. And I still find a lot of parallels between what I was doing in college and sort of what I'm interested in. Now, I found an artist statement from around that that time period. And one thing... One that you wrote for yourself. Yeah, one that I wrote for myself. And I, it was a part of my own memory, I guess, in a way. Like, I... Yeah, I just have these, like, very clear, formative moments with that television show and then thinking about the production that went all around that and how it was being cast and what cities were being chosen and sort of why I, based on my sort of class position, would have been drawn to that. And, I mean, for me, a lot of the material kind of creative work that I was exposed to initially was popular, you know, it was through popular music, popular television, and popular film. And I think in some ways it led me into more interesting <laughs> work, but I still think as a like cultural production, it was pretty significant and sort of predated or predicted a lot of the ways that people interact and present themselves through social media. So I guess I was just interested in how it started to conform to these conventions, how a person could become a character through this larger structure to be legible, basically, like to sort of make themselves recognizable or legible, how you would you could play into a certain stereotype or archetype or really, you know, almost Greek story. So I think that piece is called My Only Idol is Reality. It's from about 2007. We will either link to it or embed it, the video of it uh, on manpodcast.com. And I'm glad you brought it up because that's a piece in which you refer to a narrative, you know, to a narrative thread that runs both through the show, the real world, but also kind of the specific clips you're playing with and using. And then you kind of allow them or make them dissolve. It's almost, I guess in hindsight, a rejection of narrative. Were you interested in making narrative unimportant? I'm interested, and I was more interested even beginning, around that same time I took, I was studying with Romy Crawford, looking at race films in both sort of Jewish and black communities, kind of very early cinema, like 1905, 07 to like 20, maybe kind of around that time period. And a lot of those films, it was before, you know, Birth of a Nation is kind of thought to be this film that the first like Hollywood film in many ways. Um, A lot of the ways that the editing was structured or the story was told became codified into these sort of conventions of filmmaking. And I really like this sort of transitional cinema era because it didn't follow any of those things. And so sometimes the story or lack thereof, there was no real plot. It was emerging just from people exploring the technology, starting to put things together. And I found within sort of black cinema, which I was looking at kind of from this race film era with like Lincoln Motion Picture Company, Oscar Michaud, towards this kind of 90s-like John Singleton, Gina Prince, Blythewood, towards at that time, there was kind of a resurgence of sort of like buppy, like black yuppie films. 
I was kind of looking at that trajectory. And Tyler Perry at this time was also like so dominant. And a lot of the... Totally different, but... <laughs> yeah, yeah, very different. But I found a lot of parallels between him and someone like Michaud, who oh, had yeah. this like, who had this like real, almost like pedagogy in their film and also structure of uplift, like a kind of narrative progression. And I was really not interested in narrative progression. And so I found in these early films, just like sometimes there would be a cyclical pattern that would happen. So that was something I started to look for or try to create was kind of like loop structure or just a sort of what is the least amount of story I could put into something. And, and the audience would sort of bring that the rest with them, you know, like, and that's something else. I think if you're using popular material, it already carries a sort of host of associations and references and experiences that that viewer brings to it and that's another kind of material in terms of affect or tone that I can sort of play with or time period so I that's that's the way I think about it you have made work about black silent film before we'll, we'll come to it in a little bit but before we do let's talk about lessons the piece up at the ICA in Philadelphia it is a compilation of mostly, but not entirely, video clips from a range of technologies, by which I mean, you know, not just TV, not just YouTube, but, you know, all those kinds of things. And there, there are also, for example, some static web pages in there as, as well. And the piece is, is more compendium than it is narrative, which is to say, you know, I guess, I guess in art vocabulary, it's not Christian Markley, you know, it's not... It's not pushing a, a a vague story forward, or a, or a you know, it's not followable as a story, or even a reference to a single story. Why was and, and so that uh, and so lessons is a piece that you have kept working on and kept adding to for for three or almost four years now. Why was compendium the strategy, if you will, if that's the right word, that attracted you? I was thinking about how a story could be created through accumulation or maybe some of the senses that you get you get when you're reading a story and I was mostly thinking about poetry specifically and so I had begun working on these pieces essentially I would write or have like a sentence a kind of lesson in quotes the first five were taken directly from a book by Kevin Young the Gray Album on the Blackness of Blackness, which is kind of woven through the story as these five lessons. So first, those were my prompts, essentially. And I, I wanted to make like commercials for them. Like I wanted to kind of advertise these lessons of the tradition. I was kind of, when I read them, I was thinking about them as, as a, almost like, I just felt like they described what I was trying to do so well. And I was like, oh, I'm going to make these commercials for them. And I was thinking really like high production commercials <laughs> because I was working in production at the time. And that's where my mind was at. And then as I started doing that, I was like, wait, no, I want to do like the exact opposite. I don't want them to feel I want them to feel like very like handmade. I sort of I never use that term, <laughs> but <laughs> But as much as handmade can come from me, since I usually try to hide my hand, but I just didn't want them to have this kind of like 
Hollywood feel to them or, or commercial feel to them. Cause I felt that was an opposition to this sort of black tradition that he was talking about in the sense that as birth of a nation, it's this kind of founding text, right. For mainstream American cinema, much of that structure is derived from a kind of exclusion of the stories and, and people of color, like not even having them on screen in, in many ways or having them on screen or behind the camera in very limited roles. So I thought just as a exercise, I was going to make all the opposite decisions of how you're talking films. And so that's sort of how I began doing it. And then after I finished five, I was like, well, there's more than five lessons of this tradition. And so I started creating and pulling more of them. So each video sort of has a corresponding like lesson in my head or it's written, but it's not important for the viewer to really take that lesson in my opinion. Oh, and about the structure. So as I was doing that, I showed it to a friend and mentor of mine, David Hart, who's an artist in Philadelphia. And he was like, are you familiar with Ezra Pound's like cantos? And I was really just kind of delving into like modern poetry. Obviously I'd come across stuff, but I never really investigated it that much until I read this Kevin Young book. And he really opened the door to a lot of poets that resonated for me. And so David mentioned the cantos. And then I, I had already made this decision that I wanted to make 180 of them because it would make like a 90 minute film. 180 lessons. you mean? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I decided I was going to make 180 lessons because I wanted this kind of relentless 90 minute film at the end of it. And so then he told me about the cantos as I was saying this and it, the structure of that, there were parallels between what I was doing and, it kind of became another device for that piece. So, so did the piece, did, did the artwork come out of the lecture you did at the Walker in 2014 titled Black Vernacular Lessons of the Tradition? Is, is, is this an example of the artwork coming out of a talk? Yeah, it's related in the sense that I, after I did that talk, which I sort of used those lessons to sort of organize my own work, then the Walker was doing these video commissions and they asked if I would be interested in doing a commission for these lessons, like a video about them. And then I, as I typically do when invited to do something, just do a completely different thing than what was discussed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was like, I like that idea, except... I'm going to change all these things. And so it kind of came out of it, but indirectly. So the lessons, the, the piece at the ICA, has that ended up being a kind of vocabulary or dictionary or personal source book of stuff that you mine, of material you mine for other works? In a way, definitely. I think the first, the first ones all came from... Well, kind of a mix. I think something I do a lot is I make, even beginning when I was in college, and I guess before that, I was very active and involved like in online communities, and I was always making very short videos, and it was really discouraged <laughs> because people couldn't understand where you would see these videos. 
So this was, you know, and by, and by discouraged, you mean discouraged by your professors, by your art yeah, school Yeah, by, by many people, you know, I was by professors, by other filmmakers that I knew in Los Angeles. I, at the time, and I'm still involved with, but not as actively as I was with Echo Park Film Center, which is sort of experimental film school, micro cinema and film co-op. But I spent a lot of time there and I was really involved in a kind of experimental film community. And I think people were a little bit like, where are people going to watch these? You know, like if I make a 10 second video, it's not really something that would be screened. You can kind of show it between other shorts, but it's really short and you're not going to see it. You know, people had a hard time finding like where is the venue for this. This is like pre-YouTube and really pre-online video. But I was already really making these kind of short form, like extremely short form films. And then I really just stopped for a, while, for a few years making films in general. And I kind of came back to it. So I think that's another thing that I was sort of drawn to with this piece. So I already had a collection of sort of short films that I had made that were, you know, like a minute long and at the most. So I started to go back to those initially because they hadn't had any life, really. Um, no one had seen them. And then I'm always, I've always been very interested, I guess, in orphan media or kind of amateur media, like found home videos or films. And I would just... M many of which are in lessons. Yeah, and I, would dig and I would just digitize them. So if I bought a film on eBay, I would digitize. If I found something at the flea market, I would digitize it. Or my own home videos, I would just, you know, I would take from my parents and I would go digitize all that material. So I had a lot of that material already. And I was kind of interested in how it started to reference, you know, this sort of fantasy of like the total archive online that you could like have everything, which I'm sort of interested in that fantasy. Like I have it a bit, like I wish I could have access to all of the footage <laughs> like everywhere. And so this became a way of me sort of pretending that I did and kind of making, making, videos that would appear like they were part of this archive as well as supplementing that with archival material that I was using. And then sometimes it's like, like screen capture. Like you mentioned, one of the, one of the pieces is like of a web page. It's like, yeah, it's kind of screen cap that features two artists. I think it was Jason Musson song. And then one of the ads that popped up was for young Jake. And so I was interested in how my own browsing was sort of indexing my peers of sort of black artists. Yeah. So it really ranges. And then I'll, I'll use those for example, in the new museum triennial, I made a piece that was called uh, a pilot for a show about nowhere. And then I use the, I I use the exact structure of like a sitcom. So it's like 22 minutes, 25 with commercials. And then I use the lessons as commercials in there. So that's the most direct, like, cannibalizing of it. Otherwise, it, it's just, like, ongoing as I'm shooting things. Yeah, it's kind of the power of creating the universe with which you play, which is, I think, a neat element of it. You mentioned Black Silent Film a few minutes ago. In the, in the Hammers 2016 Made in L.A. annual, you made a video work, and stick with me for a moment here, 
you, you made a video work called Laughing Gas, which you offered up as the pilot of a sitcom that you titled She Mad. So there are a couple of layers there, but hopefully I said that. <laughs> <laughs> it's the second episode of She Mad. <laughs> oh, it's the second episode. Okay, thank you. And so your work uses a, a 1907 silent film featuring Bertha Augustus as a black lead actress, which was an unusual thing at the time, of course. I mean, this is very early in, in silent film. So before we get to your work, to the piece you made, quick pause. It, it's hard not to notice that two L.A.-based artists, you and Gary Simmons, have both made prominent works in the last year or so rooted in early 20th century black silent film, and that concurrently there have been two exhibitions about the history of black silent film in Los Angeles, um, one at UCLA and another at the California African American Museum. Were you conscious of a kind of burgeoning cultural historic moment that you wanted to play with when you started that project that was in Made in LA in 2016? Or is it just accidental and coincidental that you and Gary Simmons ended up interested in the same thing, even as some historians around town were interested in it? Yeah, I mean, my interest started in 2006. I mean, more or less. At the film center, they, they would play a lot of sort of silent films. And I grew up in Los Angeles and spent a lot of time. I tested out of high school, so I spent a lot of time by myself going to see movies. And there's a lot of different types of movie theaters in the city. Uh, so I spent a lot of time at the Egyptian, the New Art, Beverly, kind of having a pretty expanded sense of film history. And then when I was at Art Institute, took this class with Rummy Crawford that was specifically about kind of early film. And a lot of the films we got were from the Black Film Archive and at Bloomington, Indiana. So was, I was able to see a lot of sort of rare films. And I was kind of interested in, and I sort of written about this a bit, like I did a presentation at South by Southwest that was kind of tracing some of those filmmaking techniques and comparing them to, I guess, like Vine and GIFs. I felt like the internet provided uh, another site. I, I really view the internet as a kind of cinematic space. And I think that Kara Keeling has written very well about this as a kind of modern way of organizing how, how we're understanding like our experience, like cinema being one of those ways. And I feel like I just saw what people were doing on Vine and GIFs, black people specifically, a lot of parallels between what happened in this kind of early cinema form and a lot of parallels in terms of the constraints of technology and a kind of free space of distribution, right? Like right now we're figuring out how do you pay for and how do you receive and circulate this kind of media in a digital landscape. And at, in this kind of early cinema moment, they were figuring out the same thing. And because it wasn't set, there were all these experiments that happened. So I was kind of linking those in writing much more before I was make, making that work. And then it kind of came back for me around, the, I was researching a performance I was doing called Misdirected Kiss, which is a reference to this kind of set of, well, a silent film in which a white man accidentally kisses like the black 
domestic. And it was in an essay by Jacqueline Stewart, who's a film scholar at University of Chicago. And she has this book, Migrating to the Movies, that has been very formative in, in my thinking about this trajectory. And so I was kind of coming back to it as I was working on this performance, and I was obsessed with this film, Laughing Gas. It's just so the performance of Bertha Augustus and the structure of it, again, it, it's this kind of looping structure, as many of those films were, it's a, a kind of stylistic hangover of what you would have seen in Nickel, Nickelodeon or something. So it seemed like a perfect episode, too, like structure for me to continue. I sort of made a joke when I made She Mad, a pilot for a show about nowhere, which references this sitcom She Mad. I told myself, like, for biennial projects, I would just keep making new episodes. <laughs> 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 like that it could be like a project for that type of show. So kind of an engagement with the recursiveness of the, <laughs> yeah. the, the, the looping of Vine. And let, let me let me see if I understand one other thing before you go on. So Vine, as listeners may remember, it's been a few years, was kind of the original Twitter-based video service. So you'd get about a 14 or 20 second or whatever it was. Six video. second loop. Six second loop, yeah, and it would loop. So in early silent film, black or otherwise, but we're talking about black silent film, you would often get a, a you know a certain period of image on the screen, maybe twenty or thirty seconds. Often the play that the actors were performing would be repeated in a way to you know drive home the point or to fill space or whatever. And then you might get a pause and some text that would go up on the screen explaining dialogue between the two or three or four characters, for example, and then back to 20 or 30 seconds of action. Is it that fundamental similarity, that kind of short video loop replay of the action vine? Is that the intersection you were playing with? Yeah. And I feel like that relationship between this kind of short video and the caption functions in a similar way, but even in the sense of like, as an artist, Stephanie Jemison, who's also in Speech Acts, who has a really great film called Maniac Chase that is also a reference to a kind of silent film, that a lot of them have, like, Keystone Cops or, you know, if you think of some just early films from that era, a lot of them were, were meant to be replayed. So they start, they end where they start, and that's another thing I thought about vine was a lot of times people would make like maybe the more popular or more successful ones were seamless so that you they would just play in, in continuum so the piece you made for for made in la you know we, we've talked about some of the formal relationships but why did you want to engage in 2016 with a 1907 silent film featuring a black a black actress instead of a white actress in blackface that was made by a white filmmaker. What about that nexus of stuff seemed 2016, seemed now? Well, I had had a very similar experience to what was in the film. And, and, and we should say that the film is, the original film, the 1907 film, features an actress who has, you know, inhaled laughing gas, and wherever she goes, you know, the subway or whatever, she just starts laughing hilariously. I mean, 
uncontrollably, maybe is a better phrase, <laughs> and the people around her would react to that. Yeah, exactly. And I very simple. Yeah. <laughs> so like a seven or nine minute film. Yeah, and I was uh, I'd had a kind of experience of like going to the dentist to get surgery, kind of going like almost like almost to the point where the surgery began, and then it was like where I was drugged and everything, and then it was stopped because I didn't my health insurance wasn't going through and they asked if they could put it on a credit card and I was like, oh, I don't have that much money. And so I just left the dentist and I am really interested in this book, another book, Alison Landsberg's Prosthetic Memory. And so I was kind of fascinated that there was this parallel between my own life and this kind of film history. And I wanted to like meld the two. And I felt like this sort of simple looping structure could work well online and I felt like a lot of the images which I sort of make as in the film a lot of the images from the 1907 film seemed like reaction gifts to me so I made I made them into these sort of reaction gifts of her some of her expressions or some of her laughing so that's what felt 2016-y about it were you then are you now interested in the power dynamic of it being a white man and presumably white capital making a silent film featuring a black actress targeted toward a black audience? Well, yeah, I don't think by the, in the original film, I feel, I would say critical of the way the film resolves and the way that the figure is sort of marked as different. I'm pretty sure it was actually targeted towards a white audience based on the comedy that's sort of derived from her difference. So I was kind of interested in like taking that story and I'm still kind of marking myself as different in my own version of the film, but it's a, I guess I'm interested in that. Like, how do I say this? Because the gaze is different and the perspective is different my my humor is not for me being black <laughs> that's not the joke but otherwise the film is kind of the same i keep asking about power relationships and power dynamics in your work because i keep finding them and i don't see a lot of you know i don't see that you've talked about them a lot before the critics really jump into them and so a, a piece of yours that i really really like in a very nerdy way is a piece called johnson publishing company building 1971 and you were invited by two artists to create a poster inspired by, I guess is the phrase, from by, by the American Library Association's Read campaign. You know, it's one of those campaigns that we all grew up with in grade school where, you know, there's Fred Rogers on a poster suggesting you should be reading a book instead of doing whatever you're doing, right? And instead of, you know, producing a poster of your favorite children's book or your favorite young adult book or you know, whatever kind of motivating people to read it. Your poster is a picture of the Johnson Publishing Company building, which is the first, it's a, a publishing company. There's the reference to reading. And then the reference to power is that that was the first black-owned building either on Michigan Avenue or in the Loop, all the Loop, in Chicago. Am I reading that piece right? Is that, am I getting that yeah. or am I missing something? And it was the first building, it was designed by a black architect as well. And inside of the building, it was sort of 
it was kind of 1971 is when the building went up, but all of the interiors are like, you know, they, they commissioned Noguchi, but had him make it out of a kind of material from Africa. So he got all these designers, modern designers to create certain pieces for the interior and like every floor referred to a different magazine. So there was like the jet floor, the ebony floor, the kind of Negroes digest, like black world area. And Johnson's office is at the top floor and all of, they basically asked all these designers to make a black version of their most well-known designs. And I felt like I've been really interested in Johnson publishing company because they, they have been like jet a lot. Many artists have used jet as this reference because it's a kind of key magazine within black American culture. So I, I can think of Glenn Ligon, Hank Willis Thomas, Theaster Gates. I can think of quite a few people off the top of my head that have referenced kind of Jet magazine. I vaguely remember the Studio Museum doing a show about this, actually. Yeah, yeah, exactly. About five or seven or eight years ago, yeah. Yeah, speaking to people, which I was, I wish that piece was in that show. But I was also interested in, I mean, and even now, the Dana Schutz open casket is a reference to a photo that was, you know, published by, published in Ebony. So John, a Johnson magazine. Yeah, a Johnson, mag, Johnson publishing magazine. So it's like they had this incredible influence in terms of our visual understanding of black life. And their first magazine, Negro's Digest, was essentially a version of Reader's Digest. And they also had, I'm blanking on the name of it now, but I was really, I never did a project about it, but I was really interested in, they would, they had like a kind of pulp magazine that they would just take, they would just take stories like from other pulp magazines and then change all the names and change all the streets and stuff to be in black neighborhoods. And I just was very excited about, their sort of business and like the strategy of it, but they have, they have such dominance just in terms of like how Americans saw blackness. So in terms of thinking about literacy and that relationship to power, that building was designed and created as a kind of monument. Their whole project was very aspirational. And when I moved to Chicago, I remember seeing in the skyline as part of downtown they had a huge ebony and jet sign at the top of this building. So it became, it was a part of the landscape and that was very important for Johnson. You know, that was his project. And so to me, when I, Stephanie and Jamal invited me to be a part of the Alpha's bet and make a poster, Stephanie Jemison and Jamal Cyrus. Yeah. I was like, Oh, I know exactly what I'm going to do. And I used to work for Barbara Caston who had her studio next to that building so for two years i walked by that building like every day so were you trying to point out that as important as reading as is is building the, the the power to publish and to create yeah absolutely i mean i think that that's a key part of literacy you know i i've referenced june jordan has an essay from black world actually that is about i'm blanking on the name of it right now but there's a part of it where she says that power is 
being able to name things and to say what something is or isn't. And she's talking about black language as being a kind of power and you, and this sort of use of words. And so I think that idea in concert with both publishing and distributing and being independent, it was an independent company so that they could put out the material they wanted to and cater to the audience they wanted to or like part and parcel. The last thing I wanted to ask you about is the color purple. You've used the color purple as kind of everybody who's written on your work has, has noted a lot. <laughs> and I want to talk a little bit about whether or not there's also a certain inversion of traditional power dynamic in that. So, for example, in your recent projects show at MoMA that was up in the spring and summer of this year, I think, mm -hmm. the room the entire gallery in what was, was painted purple and purple is in lots of your other work in lots of different ways. And, and you've talked about how one reason you do that is to make people say the three words, the color purple to, to be reminded of, of specifically the black cultural associations of that word, novels, films, Whoopi Goldberg, Oprah, Whoopi Goldberg, Oprah, all of it. And I wanted to ask if there was another reference there maybe an ironic or I don't know if that's the right word, but maybe a, a pointedly arch reference and whether you're embedding in your use of the color purple, a reference to the lavender menace, the seventies white feminist or, or the, the phrase that came to be used to a response to white feminism by non-white feminists, particularly lesbian feminists. I'm not specifically, <laughs> 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 but I definitely it's yeah. Like I, when I say the color purple, it's kind of in reference to that time of kind of black feminist thought and all the writers who were part of that. And I did another project at the Armory Center for the Arts that was much more directly intergenerational talking about, yeah, kind of radical black feminism and publishing. That piece was called The Queen's English. Yeah, and using a lot of their text as kind of gen to generate photos. And so it's also, it is pretty much like I was just actually teaching that Combahee River collective statement like a week ago. <laughs> and a lot of my students were like, oh, I just, a lot of this is still so relevant. And then I saw that it was from 1977 and I got sad. And I was like, well, don't get sad. Get angry. No. <laughs> but I felt like, yeah, I feel like that's part of, the reference for me is, again, putting this kind of time and place and history that's sort of embedded into it. Another person, Julie Dash in, in Daughters of the Dust, purple is used, or indigo, as a kind of reference to slave work as this kind of mark, and then it's on everyone's clothes and dresses and hands, and it's sort of part of the palette, which is another thing I kind of think of with the color, but also in terms of how it functions within a gallery, you know, especially something like MoMA, I always kind of joke when I'm installing show that I want it to be like as obnoxious as possible. Like I'm like, <laughs> make it loud, make it, I want it to be like colors, super graphics, but I want, I do want there to be this kind of immediate visual impact of difference. And I guess that's sort of, goes back to what I was saying with laughing gas is 
is a kind of, there's a tension that I want to create. That's just like this room looks different than that room. And that being fine, you know, I feel like there's no need. Sometimes I get annoyed with this universalizing and I rather people be more comfortable sitting with difference. And sometimes that can come across. Yeah. Like I said, I, I call it obnoxious, but it really is. I want something to be marked. Them entering your space, not the allegedly, not the allegedly neutral white cube. Exactly. I want you entering my space, my show, you know, in some cases it feels like my head and all of the associations that kind of come with that. And so I've, I've, found and I have joked with other people about this purple just feels like a black color <laughs> and I used to talk with Noah Davis about it being like the black Eves Klein you know IKB and that's sort of how I how I think about it and use it almost like it's a neutral excellent Martine Sims thanks so much for speaking with me yeah thank you Celebrate Pacific Standard Time LALA, an ambitious exploration of Latin American and Latino art in dialogue with Los Angeles, on Saturday, October 28th from 6 to 9 p.m. An array of artists, musicians, and performers will join forces with Chicano artist and writer Harry Gamboa Jr. to recognize LA's diverse communities and voices all amid the Getty's stunning architecture and breathtaking views. Learn more about this event and upcoming performances at getty.edu 360. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University presents The Medici's Painter, Carlo Dolci and 17th Century Florence, the first American exhibition of Dolci's work. A favorite of the Medici court, Dolci was a celebrated and popular artist in his time, but his original and personal interpretation of sacred subjects fell out of favor in later centuries. The meticulously painted and emotionally charged works in the exhibition come from U.S. museums, private collections, and major European museums, and allow for an overdue reassessment of an old master painter. Carlo Dolci at the Nasher Museum at Duke University, on view through January 14, 2018. Visit nasher.duke.edu for more. The Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego presents Memories of Underdevelopment, Art in the Decolonial Turn 1960-1985, at its downtown location from September 17th through January 21st, 2018. In collaboration with the Museo Humex in Mexico City and the Museo de Arte de Lima, Memories of Underdevelopment brings together artistic practices that, although evidently related, have until now been treated separately. Showcasing conceptual and performance artworks, this exhibition will shed new light on such well-known artists as Lina Bobardi, Elio Oidesica, and Ligia Pape, as well as lesser-known artists in Colombia, Uruguay, Chile, and Peru. For more information, visit mcasd.org. Welcome back. Next, we'll listen to my 2013 conversation with art historian Petra Galoy Hertz. She's the author of a 2013 monograph of Hassel Smith's work, Smith was a major figure in the development of post-war, mostly abex painting in San Francisco. Last week, Crocker Art Museum curator Scott Shields and I talked about Smith's influence on Richard Diebenkorn, and I thought it might be a good time to revisit Smith's work. 
On November 2nd, New York's Washburn Gallery will open an exhibition of Hasselsmith's work from 1959 to 1962. We'll have a link to the show on manpodcast.com. Petra Galloy Hertz, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Hi, Todd. Hi. Who is Hasselsmith, and why were you interested in doing this monograph now? Yeah, Hasselsmith, he was an innovative, widely appreciated West Coast based artist during the significant early phases in the development of abstract expressionism in the United States. He lives uh, from 1915 and died in the year 2007. And what is the strange thing about him, that he really is hardly appreciated. He left um, paintings he did over six decades, but um, nowadays we hardly know about him. And I think uh, that's the reason, the quality of his paintings, to rediscover him again. It's not unusual to see Hassel Smith in the collection galleries at, say, the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art, and occasionally at the Hirshhorn in San Fran- and uh, at the Hirshhorn in Washington. Why isn't Hassel Smith better known now? Yeah, perhaps I can tell you that I uh, met his stepson and his widow. That I was introduced into his later work in England, um, and that I had the chance to bring these works to Germany. And because of this very um, intensive contact with the estate of Hassel Smith. Uh, there was the idea to make a book, a scholarly academic book, to find authors, specialist experts on West Coast painting who were able to write about him. And uh, then we started um, to do research, and there was a lot of research to do because paintings were lost, they were scattered around. Um, we not even know where they were because the archive was not um, so very well developed. So this was quite an adventure to look for the paintings and find them. So like many originally San Francisco-based painters of of the post-World War II period, Hassel Smith was never devoutly committed to a single style. Um, He wasn't resolutely a figurative painter. He wasn't resolutely an abstract painter. Has that impacted how how we think of and know of his work. He's painting these kind of burlesque scenes on one hand, and a few years later, he's painting marvelous abstractions. Yeah, um, I think he was criticized because of this, and people said that he has no style, and he is always changing the style. But I think all phases of his work, they are all about painting, and they are all about a, a, a quest. Um, and I think that all these phases are related to each other, and I think that's the strength and the vitality that he has tried out painting in different uh, 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 forms and styles. And you can you can see how the different phases, even if they are rep- uh, representational or figurative, or when you look at the later geometric paintings uh, or gestural paintings, um, there is a connection. And you will see a handwriting, and you will see and recognize Hassel Smith. But I think that was perhaps the reason why he was not that much appreciated later. But there are other reasons. So um, he left the West Coast. He um, went with his family in the year 1966 to England. Uh, he never lost contact um, to California. He had their uh, retrospectives. He was there as a teacher. Uh, but nevertheless, he was not there anymore. And perhaps another reason I read was that the West Coast was not the milieu, of course, as the East Coast. And um, people as Urban Plum, uh, for instance, they say if Hustle would have lived in New York, his work would have been appreciated much more.
I, I, I don't think there's any question about that. I think that's mm-hmm. absolutely right. Mm-hmm. Your essay in, in the monograph is substantially about Hassel Smith's time in England. Um, why did he move from California to England? I think there were there were different reasons. He was invited by the gallerist campuses in London for a show, and afterwards he was offered a post at the Bristol Academy of Art. Uh, he has lost his um, professorship at the San Francisco Art Institute, where he was teaching under a very influential teach, uh, teacher, the end of the 40s, beginning of the 50s. So it was also um, out of economical reasons to go to England with his wife and his um, three sons. And I know he always get back. He had three retrospectives in California. He is in the major collections represented with his work. But nevertheless, works which have been made by him in the years from 65 to 1997, they are hardly known and they were hardly uh, exhibited. And when they have been exhibited, like in San Francisco with Paula Anglim, people didn't um, understand them and there were almost um, there was almost a consternation about them. So he was not in his time and perhaps this is the thing which makes him today so very contemporary and so very very uh, vivid and interesting. One of the really interesting things about the monograph is that it reveals that Smith's paintings of, of the early 1990s have the same big sweeping kind of schmeary, if you will, brush yeah. strokes, um, as do the abstractions from the late 50s, yeah. that, that there's this real unity to, to the oeuvre over, over 40 years. Yeah, yeah. That's a wonderful bow he got and a wonderful uh, connection with his earlier um, work to revitalize um, this kind of new abstract expressionism. And uh, I can tell I have one painting of hip, of Hassel here in my apartment. And whenever people come, they are so curious and they are so excited and said, wow, what painting do you have? Is this a new young Californian artist? Who is it? And I'm always laughing and smiling. And I love to explain that this is a painting which has been painted by a man in the age of 80. And uh, it's yeah. so vivid and beautiful. And um, yeah, he's, yeah, Hustle Smith is so very contemporary. And I think that's something the book shows. And this is something a retrospective in the States uh, should show and illuminate again. I, I, I think one of the real wow moments in the book is getting getting to the last 20 or so or 15 or so color plates and seeing Smith's paintings from, from the late 80s and early 90s and how uh, fresh they are, how smart the, the, the color in them is. Um, they're really, they're really quite astonishing, and they've barely, as you as you note, been seen in the United States. Um, one of the uh, one of the things that that a number of essayists in the book note is the close relationship between Hassel Smith and Clifford Still. What what was their relationship? And it seems like Hassel Smith really took Still's support of his work to heart. Yeah, uh, this relationship is something Susan Landau in her essay is referring to, and there are a lot of um, wonderful letters between the two um, which show their friendship. Um, they were found in the archive, 
And uh, you see that they encourage each other, even Hustle encourages Clifford Still. And I think their attitude towards the market and towards the art scene is very, um, very singular. And um, there are beautiful episodes when the two um, have met, when Clifford Still had a show and, um, and found Hustle's support. And uh, Clifford um, gave him compliments for his show in San Francisco, what the geometric paintings are concerned, which were not understood by anybody. But Clifford said they are just great. So um, there's a wonderful relationship between, between the two who have met at professors at the San Francisco Art Studios in the early 50s. And mm. um, Hustle was deeply impressed, and this was almost a visual shock um, to meet Clifford Still's paintings. You could almost suggest that those kind of big, sweeping, um, broad brushstrokes, um, single brushstrokes that move across Hassel Smith's paintings over so many decades come right out of Clifford Still's palette knife um, smears of, of pigment on his canvases. I mean, it, 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 there really is a direct um, dialogue in their work. Yeah, um, yeah. They use yeah. a lot of the same colors, too. Yeah, yeah. When you say dialogue, I really would agree. Uh, on the other hand, you would say that that um, Hustle Smith has established an independent uh, work, of course. But there is, I think, there is a um, there is a relationship, and uh, I think the strength. What people thought it's a disadvantage that Hustle came away from abstract expressionism to figurative paintings and back, and sometimes did both at the same time. This is, of course, something very special about him. I think we're also maybe beginning to learn more about or accept more about how often so many painters we think of as being abstract painters went back and forth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not, he's not an exception. Uh, uh, the big names, if it's Jackson Pollock or who, who you want to name, they, they did it as well. Not just developing from out of the figurative coming to abstractions, abstraction, but going back again, forth. One of the other great things that Hassel Smith um, does is you can see that he's informed uh, probably in, indeed by Gorky, but also uh, by, by Still, Richard Diebenkorn, um, kind of some, some especially kind of their, their, their palettes, some compositional elements are in common. But one of the one of the paintings I think about a lot is probably the painting of Smith that's out most often at the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art, and that's his 1959 painting A Rose, um, which is kind of a beautiful pinkish, reddish, mm -hmm. white wash. Um, do you know if that painting has anything in common or or a common origin with Jay DeFeo's The Rose, which started? With which DeFeo started the year before Hassel Smith started his painting? Oh, I have to say that I don't know. And I not even remember that Susan Landau, who is really an expert in all artists of the West Coast, has referred to this parallel. So what do you think? What do you have um, found out about that? I don't know. I, I just, I you know, there's a big Jay DeFeo show that um, the Whitney Museum of American Art has, has started. It will be opening at the Whitney um February. I I don't know. It, the the similar, you know, two major paintings. The the um, the Hassel Smith painting, a rose, is um, almost seven feet tall. I mean, it's mm -hmm. it's it's a major mm -hmm. physical experience, just mm -hmm. as DeFeo's painting is, and mm -hmm. they're titled 
you know, quite similarly. Mm -hmm. And um, I don't know. It just made me wonder. It may be that nobody's done, done, nobody's really looked into it. It would be curious to follow it up. Good to have them, to see more of the influences on each other. But with this painting, I, I really don't know. Do you have uh, a favorite painting or two that you included in the in the catalog in the monograph? Um, yeah, I think um, what I like very much, but this is because these paintings are um, unknown, is really paintings of the late face. So um, I love the paintings when he's coming back uh, in the age of eighty to his um, former abstract expressionism uh, paintings. Um, with these beautiful biomorphic forms and with this um, uh, painting from the edges into the painting coming out. Oh, I'm mm. sorry. I'm sorry for my English. <laughs> it's hard to talk. No, it's very hard to talk about a painting and about the delicacy of the painting and about how he does the layers and the colors and his sensitivity for the colors. It's um, very difficult to explain, but... In this phase, all paintings are untitled. So um, my favorite painting, amongst others, is from 1997, where you have these floating shapes, which arise many associations um, in your mind, and which I think are very, very beautiful. So you have light blue uh, color and rosé, very, yeah, very delicate and sensitive and sensuous. I think that's the last painting. In, that's the in last painting, <laughs> exactly. And it, is, it is an absolutely astonishing um, painting. Uh, it, it, uh, one of the things I noticed about the late works is whereas many painters late in their lives begin to work with smaller canvases because they're more physically manageable, in, 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 even as he is in his 80s, as you point out, Hassel Smith is still working on canvases that are six and a half feet tall and four mm -hmm. feet wide. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he has always um, um, the same dimensions. There are two sizes. It's uh, 86, I'm sorry, 68 by 68 inch, or the quadrat, it's, it's the quadrat, or the square, or it's the 68 by 48, the rectangular. And that's the way he is painting. And he giving up this painting when physically is not anymore um, possible to do it. That's the time when he um, returns to drawings. And Hassel Smith also is a beautiful, um, mm. uh, a, uh, does beautiful drawings as well. We haven't talked about the drawing and the printmaking and the poets, his poems he's writing and his closeness to jazz, to music, to rhythm. So he is an enormous, wonderful, free spirit in all kinds of art. And, and, and indeed, one of the essays in the catalog, Susan Landauer's, talks a good bit about Smith's relationship to the beat scene and the poetry scene and the jazz scene, in fact, in San Francisco in, in, in the 40s and 50s. Yeah, and this is something which really accompanies him through all his life, the affinity uh, to music, to musicians, and um, that's something um, where he also takes his inspirations. It's interesting. So many of those San Francisco school painters of the 40s and 50s, uh, David Park, Richard Diebenkorn, loved jazz, loved yeah. being around it. Um, and and David Park, for example, also made a number of paintings of, of jazz musicians. It's something yeah. that runs through yeah. all of those painters. Well, Petra Galloy hertz thank you for the monograph, and thanks so much for talking with me on the Modern Art Notes podcast. I thank you, Kyle. Thank you so much. That's all for this week's show. 
The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.